0: Free-thinking atheist witchy farmer, herbalist wise woman, obia woman, healer, off-grid homesteading hedge witch, living close to nature, black Hispanic, Afro-Latina, Jamaican, Honduran, Caribbean American, honoring and embodying the spirit of Queen Nanny of the Maroons. Born in the inner city of Boston, educated and came of age in the affluent metro-west suburbs, escaped to beautiful rural central Massachusetts in 2015. Welcome to Sweet Sage Homestead. Dead Farm and Path of a Green Witch podcast. My name is Andrea. Remember, Black Lives Matter and love is love. Today is Saturday, May 29th, 2021. I want to discuss wise women. I want to talk a little bit more about the history of herbal healing, and wise women are very important to that history. Women healers have gone by many names. Midwives, wise women, green women, witches, old wives, and nurses. Most physicians have never taken women's folk healing very seriously, and scientists often dismiss folk wisdom as, quote, old wives tales medically untrained women still provide a lot of health care around the world they are basically the primary care providers for their families even in the united states most people view physicians as like a last resort you know you're not just going to immediately go to the doctor for every ache pain or ailment most likely you're going to try to find a remedy on your own you're probably going to ask your mom grandmother, aunt, somebody you trust for some advice before you consult a physician. Midwives completely dominated obstetrics and gynecology until about a century ago. There were a lot of herbs that were traditionally used to calm the womb, trigger menstruation, induce abortion, help to dry up a mother's milk, or treat infant colic. And it's actually well known that some medically untrained women herbalists actually introduced university trained physicians to powerful medicines like foxglove, which is where we get this heart drug called digitalis. So it's kind of weird that physicians look down on folk healers as ignorant practitioners of inferior medicine when they've actually learned a lot from herbalists, folk healers, wise women. The wise women were particularly adept at contraception, you know, preventing pregnancy. And around 700 BC, an oracle sent Greek colonists to the coast of what is now Libya to found a colony, Cyrene. It was located in a dry, desolate, inhospitable place, but the colonists soon discovered a plant that made them wealthy. It was called Silphium. In Latin, Silphium. It's a species of fennel. Silphium was a remarkably effective contraceptive. When women ate it, they did not become pregnant. The herb quickly became the contraceptive of choice around the Mediterranean. Cyrenian coins depicted the plant, often held by a woman. Poets wrote of its powers, and eventually, over-harvesting, completely wiped it out. Among the monastic orders, the Benedictines were the most avid herbalists. They were the first Europeans to adopt the Arab practice of making tinctures. They flavored wine with digestion-promoting herbs and created the forerunners of today's liqueurs, one of which is still known as Benedictine. The most notable Benedictine herbalist was Hildegard of Bingen. She lived from 1098 to 1179. She was abbess of the Rupertsburg Convent in the German Rhineland. Hildegard was a Renaissance woman centuries before the Renaissance, a nun, administrator, composer, writer, and herbalist. She wrote religious music that is still performed today. Hildegard claimed that visions of God commanded her to treat the sick and compile herbal formulas. Her book, Hildegard's Medicine, combined mystical Catholicism and early German folk medicine, along with the author's own extensive herbal experience. Hildegard's favorite herbs included aloe, apple, basil, bay, blackberry, caraway, celery, clove, dill, fennel, garlic, hyssop, licorice, marjoram, myrrh, nettle, nutmeg, onion, oregano, parsley, raspberry, rosemary, rue, thyme, and watercress. Hildegard's Herbal is unique. She wrote an original medical work based on her own experience at the time when the few literate Europeans, mostly monks, were content to copy the Greeks, Romans, and Avicenna. What's more, she was the only medieval woman who left any account of the wise women healing practices. Hildegard of Bingen was lucky to have lived in the 12th century. Had she practiced herbalism from 1300 to 1650, she probably would have been burned as a witch. It's unclear what actually led to Europe's 350 years of witch hunts. But some feminists linked the practice to the rise of secular medicine as a male-dominated profession. You know, initially folk healers were mostly women, and as men started to turn it into more of like a man's profession where men were becoming university-trained physicians, they had to demonize women in order to help them gain more credibility and help the wise women lose credibility. Other people blame the hysteria on the bubonic plague, or you know, some people call it the Black Death, which swept Europe in waves and killed half its population. There's a more recent theory though that European rulers and the Catholic Church became alarmed by the decline in population. They blamed that on contraceptive herbalism, which wise women recommended. The leading medieval contraceptive herbs were all abortifacients. The most popular, Popular abortifacient herbs were pennyroyal, Artemisia and Rue. Modern research shows that all three of these, Pennyroyal, Artemisia, and Rue, stimulate uterine contractions and will induce an abortion. So, some people think that the Catholic Church and other European rulers didn't like that the population in Europe was dropping and they wanted people to stop aborting their babies, and that's why they started to demonize the women who were recommending the herbs that would bring on an abortion. Whatever the cause of the witch hunts, after 1300, the image of the folk herbalist changed from helpful wise woman to evil witch. Witch hunts started in Germany and eventually reached all of Europe. Accusations of sexual intercourse with the devil were typically accompanied by testimony that the alleged witch practiced herbal medicine and made healing mixtures, cosmetics, love potions, aphrodisiacs, abortifacients, and poisons. Accusations of poisonings were particularly damning. It's quite possible that some women herbalists continued the Roman tradition of herbal assassination, but this was the era before the discovery of dose-response relationship, the idea that the greater the dose, the greater the effect. So many so-called witches' plants poisonous in large amounts cause no harm in therapeutic or cosmetic amounts. But nonetheless, the witch hunters considered them Poisons. One plant associated with witchcraft was called devil's herb. Large amounts are lethal when taken internally. The juice causes the pupils to dilate when placed in the eyes, and medieval women use devil's herb cosmetically. Eventually, the plant was renamed Belladonna, or Beautiful Woman. Then there was Witch's Bells. Large amounts are poisonous, but small amounts stimulate the heart. After the witch hunt era, the plant's name was changed to Foxglove. Remember I mentioned Foxglove was the source of that heart drug, Digitalis? So Foxglove used to be called Witch's Bells. After After the Winch Hunts, the saintly Hildegard was forgotten. She was replaced by the witches of Shakespeare's Macbeth, who threw mandrake, belladonna, and other evil herbs into their bubbling cauldron. Witches were also vilified in the stories that have become today's fairy tales. In Snow White, for example, the evil queen witch concocts an herbal poison, coats an apple with it, and slips it to Snow White, who falls into a coma, thus following a tradition of herbal assassination dating back to the Romans. The witch hunts failed to eradicate women's herbal but they succeeded in driving it underground. More than a century after the last witch hunts, the old woman who helped popularize foxglove said that it was a secret family recipe. Her forebearers had good reason to keep their use of witches' bells a secret. With the invention of printing in the 1450s, herbals proliferated, and England's university-trained physicians began to fear the loss of their medical monopoly. So basically, when mass-printing became popular, you know, around the 1450s, people were printing these books about herbalism, and the university-trained physicians started to feel a little nervous that maybe people wouldn't need them as much. They were emboldened by the witch hunts, and they lobbied their influential patients in the British court to outlaw the practice of medicine by the, quote, rogues, horse gelders, rat catchers, idiots, and witches, end quote, to restrict it to them. So they wanted to make sure that only university trained physicians would be allowed by law to practice medicine. In a 1511 decree, Henry VIII reserved the practice of medicine for university trained physicians and barber surgeons who had completed apprenticeships. Anyone else had to pass a test administered in Latin by the Bishop of London and a committee of prominent doctors. Of course, folk herbalists could not read latin many didn't read english some stopped practicing many became green men and women latter-day rhizomists who supplied herbs to the physicians and the early pharmacists or apothecaries often while continuing to practice herbal healing stealthily and illegally. So basically, they passed laws that really only served the elites. It made it so that poor or uneducated people, the traditional folk healers, were no longer legally allowed to offer medical advice. So they became the people who would either provide the the plant materials, like the roots and things like that, to the pharmacists, apothecaries, or even the physicians. And a lot of them just continued to practice herbal healing in secret, basically breaking the law. I mentioned Nicholas Culpepper In a previous episode, Nicholas Culpeper was by far England's most influential herbalist. His book, Complete Herbal and English Physician, was first published in 1652 and has been in print ever since. It appeared in more than 100 editions. And that's a record that's only been surpassed by the Bible and Shakespeare. So he is incredibly influential and well-known. And he's known as England's herbal Robin Hood because, as a Puritan, he was outraged that the monarchist College of Physicians ignored the medical needs of the largely Puritan lower class. His solution was to become England's medical Robin Hood, and in 1649, Culpeper translated the College of Physicians' Latin manual, the Pharmacopeia Londonensis, into English, calling it the London Dispensatory and Physical Directory. It gave apothecaries and others illiterate in Latin their first look at the one thousand six hundred sixty simples and 1,100 other formulas that constituted the state of the art in 17th century British medicine. I'm going to talk more about Nicholas Culpepper in another episode. I'm going to devote an episode just to him, talk about his work, his life, what motivated him to do what he did, but I have a lot of respect for somebody who is willing to defy unjust authority. I think defiance to an unjust authority, it takes a certain kind of person. It takes a certain kind of courage and I just have a lot of respect for the people who are willing to stand up and be brave in situations like that. So I am going to devote an episode to Nicholas Culpepper and talk about the good that he did for the people. In 1767, a 26-year-old William Withering had barely begun practicing medicine in Stafford, England when he was called to treat 17-year-old Helena Cooks. She was bedridden with a lingering illness that kept her from her favorite pastime painting watercolors of wildflowers. Like every other medical student, Withering had studied botany. He hated it. Still, he was quite taken with the young Miss Cooks. He gathered wild flowers for his patient to paint while in bed, and he married her five years later. Along the way, he developed a passion for medical botany. In the year 1775, he later wrote, My opinion was asked concerning a recipe for the cure of dropsy, which is congestive heart failure. I was told that it had been a family secret of an old woman in Shropshire who sometimes made cures after regular practitioners had failed. The old woman's recipe contained 20 herbs, but Withering quickly decided that the heart stimulator was foxglove. Withering began using foxglove himself and gained a reputation for treating the heart problem. In 1776, Dr. Erasmus Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather, asked Withering to treat a woman with dropsy. Withering gave her foxglove and she improved. Darwin submitted a report to a British medical journal claiming that he himself had cured the woman using foxglove. He did not mention Withering. Furious. Withering published his account of the foxglove and its medical uses, which summarized his results in 163 cases. The drug derived from foxglove, Digitalis, has only recently been surpassed by other medications as a treatment for congestive heart failure. I know that being a witch means something different to different people. Just like there are many different types of witches, there are so many different paths you can take, but overall there seems to be some consensus on the understanding that being a witch has something to do with a deeper connection to nature and to the entire cosmos. We know that witches can be male or female, and I know I use the term wise woman, but there were obviously men healers who did the same practice of herbalism as well. We would not want to call a male witch a warlock, mostly because the word warlock comes from an old English word meaning oathbreaker or liar. And we're not trying to do that to guys. Another overarching theme for witches is the respect for the environment, gender equality, overcoming religious biases, and narrow-minded thinking. Like basically, your walk with nature is a very important part, but social justice is another important part of the path of most witches. So on my path, I'm actually trying to learn more about witchcraft and create a path that I feel is more morally right. And I'm hoping that I will gain a greater appreciation for the natural world, the cycles of the moon, the energies of the season. I want to strengthen my bond with the land, with the animals, birds, and other creatures. And I want to learn more about herbs and flowers, crystals, gemstones, all of these things. So this is what witchcraft means to me. And these are the things that I want to share on this podcast. I thank you so much for listening. I hope that you find this in formative. and I want you to know that you already have the power to tap into the energies of the natural world and the cosmos. So it's just a matter of deciding that that's what you want to do in order to develop an inner spirituality. Just to clear up another misconception: witches are not Satanists. The whole concept of Satan is a Christian concept, and unless you're a Christian witch, you might not even believe in Satan. Witches don't necessarily inherit magical powers from ancestors, but if you were trained by one of your family members, then you might know a little bit more about your path than a new or baby witch. Not all witches have psychic powers or the gift of prophecy, and some people who don't even identify as witches actually have that gift. The word wizard or sorcerer can be used for either a man or a woman. Wizard actually derives from a word meaning wise, and sorcerer just means witch or diviner. The term magician actually describes people who are familiar with astrology, sorcery, divination, spellcasting, and other magical arts, and not just familiar with them, but who are adept in them, who are like good at those things. A witch is someone who uses his or her power along with the natural laws of the universe to shape reality according to their own purposes. Witchcraft is the practice of manipulating energy through various means to produce a desired result. That's basically what witchcraft means to me. Overall though, living in harmony with nature seems to be the biggest defining quality of witches. Obviously green witches seem to put a little more focus on that, on that connection with nature, but witches in general seem to have an appreciation for nature. And that's why witches were people who relied on herbs and this connection with nature. We know that even in derogatory terms, when we look at like Shakespeare's witches in Macbeth, they were using herbs, they were throwing them in their cauldron. And just like when I talked about Queen Nanny of the Maroons, and that she actually had a pot that could boil with no fire under it. She was clearly using herbs and mixing them in such a way that fascinated people. The connection with nature, the deep understanding of how to use the natural world to leave people in awe or heal sickness or just do really fascinating things, that was one of the main defining qualities of how to get labeled as a witch. And because you were making people feel like you had powers that they didn't understand, (laughs) that put a real target on your back. So that's why witches were definitely targeted. And we could get into why it seemed that more women were targeted than men, even though we know that men practiced witchcraft just like women, but we kind of know that already. So anyway, I hope you found this informative. Thanks for listening.